This is Talk RL Podcast. All reinforcement learning, all the time. Interviews with brilliant folks from across the world of RL. I'm your host, Robin Chohan. Dr. Jessica Hamrick is a research scientist at DeepMind. She holds a PhD in psychology from UC Berkeley. It's very kind of you to join us, and thanks so much for being here, Dr. Hamrick. Uh, Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. So how do you describe uh, the area that you focus on? So um, having done my PhD in psychology and sort of coming from this cognitive science background, um, my research sort of is at the intersection of cognitive science and AI. So, you know, my goal is to sort of take insights that we have about how we know that people think about things and then try to apply those to building better machine learning algorithms. And in particular, um, I sort of am doing that in the context of model-based methods um, and model-based RL. Your background in psychology and now working on RL, is that becoming a more common combo or is that um, still quite rare? So I would say that's actually, um, well, it's interesting because it's, it's, in some cases it's not, or in some sense it's not that common, but it also, if you look at like the history of AI and psychology, well, and cognitive science in particular, they're actually like, you know, very closely related. So a lot of the ideas that are in RL have come out of um, a lot of the work in psychology on, you know, how humans learn and how animals learn. Um, and with a lot of the stuff that I work on in terms of, say, like, you know, model-based methods and, and thinking about, like, uh, you know, building models of the world is also, like, a topic that's been explored fairly extensively um, in psychology and, like, at the intersection of psychology and AI, particularly um, in the past, though, the, the you know, the fields have sort of, like, separated a little bit. And so it's maybe less crosstalk now than there used to be. Um, though there is still, like, a, a, l- a large number of people who have expertise in both, particularly um, there's perhaps even more people like on the neuroscience side, a lot of people studying how people make make decisions, um, coming at it from the perspective of neuroscience, and then applying our RL methods to model that as well. We had Michael Littman on for the mm-hmm. second episode, and he was talking about the RLDM conference that draws people from different fields. So maybe there's, there's some conferences that have that focus on this overlap? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think it's it's super exciting to see conferences like RLDM now that are sort of trying to bridge the gap between the fields. Um, I actually haven't been to RLDM yet, but I, I hope I'll be able to make it one of these days because it, it really sounds like a fantastic conference. Me too. So I, I, I really enjoyed your ICML talk. Thank you. Where you spoke about uh, your structured agents paper um, as part of it. And I wonder, could you uh, help our listeners understand what is the gist of that paper? Yeah, so um, so the idea there was to sort of explore ways of achieving or using more structure um, in agents. So, so let me let me like preface that a little bit by saying so there's sort of like you know in deep RL especially there's like a little bit of this tension between like the sort of like end to end approach where you know you sort of use like a relatively like um, you know, well-accepted architecture, like maybe just like a CNN or whatever, and then you just train it on lots of data and you hope that like the right representations and behavior will fall out of that. Um, and then there's sort of like, you know, the more like classical like AI approach where you would sort of build in all of the structure and like kind of basically make all the decisions for the agent. Um, and and so there wasn't really very much learning there at all. And I think that there's, um, the, there's a lot of potential 
for exploring the space between those two ends of you know the spectrum um, and building some amounts of structure into agents um, based on you know what we know about how the world works, but not building too much in and allowing that you know the learning to sort of like fill in the gaps. Um, so that's kind of like the idea um, there, and, and we were, so we were looking at that particularly in the context of uh, tasks where you really require reasoning about like. Um, the structure of the world, meaning like the fact that there are like objects in the world and those objects, you know, relate to each other in certain ways, like objects can be on top of each other or next to each other, or, you know, they collide in certain ways. They have these physical interactions as well. Um, and, and so we were interested in tasks that sort of were, uh, you know, based in that type of structure in the world and then getting agents to be able to solve those tasks by giving them just the right structure in their architectures um, that they would, you know, sort of be able to do a good job there. So, so specifically, we looked at these block stacking tasks where um, the goal is to stack some blocks up in order to solve some sort of goal. So, for example, um, in the easiest version of the task, we have like the silhouette task where um, the goal is to stack blocks just to sort of duplicate a structure that you're already given. Um, so you sort of, you know, just have to um, place them. You, you like look at where look at the given structure and then you just place the block so it matches the given structure. Um, and then we have like harder versions of the task where you have to actually design a solution to a problem. Like, so if the goal is to stack blocks to say like create a shelter over another object, then you have to figure out, okay, how exactly do I place them so that they're stable and so that they'll, you know, appropriately like solve this problem of creating this shelter. Um, and so the way that we approached doing this was by taking this idea that like, you know, these types of scenes in, in this task do have a lot of structure in them. Again, you know, sort of like what I was saying, there's like structure in terms of the objects in the scene and the relationships to each other. Um, and then allowing the agent to actually exploit that structure. Um, and the way that we do that is using a, a type of neural network called a graph neural network, um, which processes um, graphs. And so we can represent the scene as a graph, allow the agent to process that graph, um, and then, you know, return an action on the basis of that structure. So the first time I encountered your paper, I uh, this structured agents paper, I had to do a double take because there was there was this the structure word was overloaded yeah. in a few <laughs> different ways. It was there was let's see if I can break it down. There, yeah, you mentioned structured representations mm -hmm. and then structured computation, and then also your agents were building structures. Yes. So um, can you can you um, just remind us of the distinction between the representation and the computation? Uh, yes. Yeah, so, so I'll actually say I, I think of there as being basically like when you're talking about the design of the agent, there's three types of structure that you could consider. Um, so there's structure in the inputs, there's structure in the computations that are performed, and then there's structure in the outputs. Um, and then then there's also like there's structure in the world, but that's like um, when I, when we refer to structure in the paper, we're referring more to structure in the agents themselves, which may or may not reflect some of the structure that's in the world. Um, so the structure in the inputs is like um, things like, you know, the, you know, when the agent, so if you take like a typical RL agent, it probably receives this input um, like an image, right? And so that image is like a relatively unstructured representation because, um, you know, it's like, it's always the same dimensionality. Um, it's relatively flat. Um, and then, you know, it's very, very high dimensional. Um, so you might be able to extract structure from that. Like, you know, it's, um, it, in it, like, it, 
there there is some function, some transformation of that input that would give you something that's more structured, but the representation itself is it's just a grid, right? So there's there's not too much structure there to exploit. Um, however, something like say like a graph. Um, has a lot more structure to it because there's sort of like these discrete, you know, entities like the nodes in the graph. And then you can have edges between different nodes that represent something like relationships between those nodes. And so now you're talking about, you know, there's like, you can represent different types of information in that way than you would be able to represent and say like an image. Um, and um, so that's like, <clears throat> that's sort of like the structure of the input. And then, then you could talk about the structure of the computation, which would be like, so one, you know, possibility would be say, maybe you just take like, even if you have a structured input, like a graph representation, you could just have like an RNN, which like, you know, goes over all of the nodes in the graph and like processes each of each one of them. And then at the end gives you like a vector, some like latent representation of what the graph is. Um, so that would sort of like convert it to an unstructured representation. And then you could just do like, again, you know, like MLPs or whatever on top of that vector. So that would be like an unstructured computation because you're, you're again still like operating over this like internal unstructured representation. Um, and then, um, but in contrast, if you have something like a graph neural network, which explicitly processes the graph, then that's doing a form of structured computation because you're making more assumptions about like, um, you know, the way that information is shared. So in a graph neural network, you basically assume that like every node gets processed the same way, every edge gets processed the same way. And that's a particular type of structure or, you know, or inductive bias that we're assuming um, in the computation of that algorithm. Um, and then I think structured like outputs or structured actions are something we actually maybe talk even less about in RL. I think I think we don't talk about any of these things enough in RL, but actions I think we we talk about the least potentially. Um, which is you know usually when we're talking about actions in RL, like say if you're talking about in the context of a game, you would say okay, well the actions are you know like move up, move right, move left, move down. Um, they're sort of you know completely independent of what your states are. Um, so, you know, at every state, you have the same actions that you can take, and it's like a relatively small amount of actions, typically. But you could also consider having, you know, larger forms of structure or more structure in your actions as well. So maybe you can take actions that are, um, you know, a function of your inputs. And that's what we do in this paper, where the actions that we have the agents take are actually things like place a block on top of another block, rather than, say, like placing a block at position like x, y. Um, and so having this structure in the actions is, is an additional, you know, way of, you know, sort of providing a particular type of inductive bias to the agent um, that allows it to more easily reason about things like objects in the world. Okay. And then, so I guess we're presupposing that something else is breaking down the image into this graph representation before it's input into the agent. Yes. Yeah, so in, the, in this paper, we most of our experiments were with um, assuming that we had access to like the underlying object properties. So things like, you know, their position, their size, the shape, so on and so forth. Um, I think in these particular construction scenes, the perception problem is not really like all that interesting. Like the shapes are super simple. I think, um, you know, Probably you could take some sort of like off-the-shelf segmentation algorithm, and it would probably do a reasonably good job mm -hmm. here. Um, and and so we actually did like we did some additional experiments where we were like given the ground truth um, segmentations, um, and then like pass 
the the segmented images like through CNN to get the embedding and then still do like a structured graph um, computation um, in the agent's policy. And you get almost the same level of performance there. So um, as long as you have something that could actually you know do the segmentation, I think it would work pretty well. I think um, so in, th- in this particular environment, I think, you know, that the question of like, how do you go from like perception to um to the structured representations is maybe not quite so interesting. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's like other environments where that question is much more interesting. Like if you're say in like a, a 3D first person perspective sort of environment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But yeah, that, it's like an open question of like how to make that work well. Um, it's something a lot of people are working on and we're starting to see some progress on it. Um, though I think we'll continue to probably see a lot more over the next couple of years. And then on the on the back end, maybe we need a little bit of smarts to turn that that relative object based action into a an absolute action that could actually yeah. be be executed. Yeah, I think that that's something that is like there's less work on that. Um, though I think that there should be more work on that sort of thing of, of you know actually having the action space that the agent is um, interacting with be something that's learned um, so that you know, it sort of is like, it's a more efficient space to learn in or whatever, rather than like the true action space. But um, I think people aren't like, th- there isn't a lot of work that is focused on even training agents in these sort of more type, more structured types of action spaces. So I think probably what we'll see is like, um, you know, maybe that will become more of an area of focus, like people will first start to uh, explore, you know, other types of structured actions that you might possibly um, use for different types of environments. And then we'll sort of as a field move towards all, then like also learning what those that structured representation should be. Mm-hmm. It seems to me as like as a human, like as a kid, when we we grab a um, some reacher toy or something, we suddenly have a it's almost like we have a new shape arm and we have these different actions we can do we've never seen before. And we're spending a little bit of time to learn this new action space. Um, that doesn't correspond to our the what we're used to in terms of how our, our um, motor control works. Maybe there's something similar there. Yeah, so I guess you're talking a little bit about like um, the idea of like tool use. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, you, I think that that's very well. Yeah, so I think well, there's I guess there's sort of like two questions. Like one is like how like I think we as humans are sort of like we're born with a assumptions about like the sort of like you know the right sort of like abstract um action representations that we might use to interact with the world so like already like you know when babies are born they have some sort of notion already that objects exist in the world um and um so they have like this bias towards that and um and so there's sort of the question of like how how might you get an agent to have like that kind of sort of abstract notion of like what types of things it could potentially interact with and like you know what types of action representations could be there out in the world um and then there's a question of like given that you have this sort of like abstract representation or you know the the sense of like um in the abstract sense or in the general sense like what types of actions can you take on things then how does that translate to then when you're you're put in a new environment with a new, say, physical object you could interact with. Like, how do you sort of like fine tune what you already have um, to to uh, be more appropriate for this new tool or new environment that you're in? So, in this paper, I think for the continuous case, um, 
used this algorithm that was referred to as RS0, which I gather is like a descendant of SVG. Yes. Um, so is there, can, can you help me, uh, is, was there a rationale for choosing that specific um, uh, continuous action model-free algorithm? Not in particular. The sort of like more, if you're coming at it from like kind of a more traditional like RL perspective, the more natural like choice of action would be like you place a block at a particular location. It doesn't make a lot of sense to try to like discretize like all of those locations into a grid and then like use something like DQN. Well, we tried that, but it didn't really work either. <laughs> so we, we mostly just wanted to have like a solid comparison for, you know, some sort of like continuous based um, action agent. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, so, you know, SVG can work reasonably well. Uh, the, the R in RS0 is, stands for retrace, so it adds this, like, retrace correction to it. Um, and that, that is just, like, you know, it works reasonably well on, like, other tasks, so we, we went ahead and, and used that. But, I mean, we could have just as easily used, like, DDPG or something else, too. Um, so this work has some uh, very unique uh, environments, the, the ones that you meant, the block stacking environments you mentioned, um, mm-hmm. it, I found them very refreshing, uh, especially after seeing, you know, so much Atari. And <laughs> there was a bunch of papers where they did Doom and this stuff. So it was very refreshing to see these tasks. Um, how, how did you settle on these tasks? Was it was it easy to, to um, decide on these tasks or was there a lot of back and forth on, on these specifics of, of what tasks you'd, you'd focus on for this? Um. You know, the, the choice of the tasks kind of, well, so the, the overall like environment of like the idea of doing block stacking sort of like, um, has been a bit of a long time coming. So, um, I, so Peter Vitalia, one of the other authors on the paper, he and I used to work together, um, when we were both at MIT, like a long time ago. Um, and we were both working, um, in Josh Tenenbaum's lab and we worked on, uh, uh, basically doing psychological modeling of how people reason about physical scenes, um, where the scenes are things like, you know, stacks of blocks. And then we asked people to make predictions about, you know, whether the towers will fall over or like what direction will they fall in. And then we were doing modeling of people's behavior in those sorts of scenes. I think so, I saw your master's was on that topic. Is that right? Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, so that, that was like the, the work that I did both in undergrad and then leading into the master's thesis as well. Um, and so, you know, we've, so those tasks were kind of like looking at like, how do you make physical predictions? But we were always kind of motivated by the idea that like, you know, people are very good at actually building things and constructing things out of blocks. And that's a very like, it's a natural human, it's a very naturalistic behavior. Like, you know, kids love to play with blocks. And, and so we've always kind of, really wanted i think to like you know be able to write a program that would be able to like learn to stack blocks too um and create things um so uh so that's sort of you know been something that both of us have been interested in for a very long time and then um and you know it's nice because it has a lot of connections to like um you know it's it kind of feels like an ecologically valid like set of tasks to train agents on at least to some extent um, you know, it's inspired by like, you know, behaviors that children produce and, um, and they're very challenging for modern machine learning methods because they kind of have this like very, um, you know, co- uh, combinatorial, um, compositional flavor to them, right? So like, there's like many, many ways you can stack a set of blocks together. Um, it's not just like, you know, Atari where you have like, you know, basically the episode starts and it's the same like every time almost, um, 
you know, maybe there's a little, little bit of non-determinism, but it's roughly always the same. Whereas like in these sort of like compositional environments, you can very easily get into states that you've never really seen before at all. Um, and so then, but how we settled on like the particular four, well, the silhouette task, uh, so that's the one I mentioned is like, you basically have to replicate a given structure that's kind of more similar to a lot of existing block stacking tasks in the literature. So often, like if you see agents being trained to stack blocks, they're sort of given an example tower and then they have to stack the blocks in the same way as the example that they were given. Um, so that was sort of just based on like the type of thing that um, people have done before. Um, and then the other three tasks, um, which are uh, connecting, covering, and then another variant of covering called covering hard, uh, were uh, tried to get away from like this idea that you're sort of given the solution and you just have to replicate it. We wanted to actually have agents have to design their own solutions. Um, and so, you know, the connecting task, that one is um, you have to stack the blocks so that they reach a point um, in the sky, and it's, or we actually had like three points, so you have to actually construct maybe like up to three towers of blocks. And then there's also obstacles that you have to stack the blocks around. So you, if you, um, if any of the blocks collide with an obstacle, then the episode will terminate. So you have to avoid the obstacles while trying to stack the blocks to reach these points in the sky. And that kind of felt a little bit like, you know, maybe like what you would do, like if you're just playing with blocks, you're like, okay, I want to like stack the blocks up as, as high as possible or whatever. Sort of similar to that. Um, and then what's one of the other things that we do when, you know, we build things? Well, we, you know, we build things so that we have, you know, like shelter or whatever. So that sort of inspired like the, the covering, um, and covering hard tasks where the idea is, um, you want to stack the blocks so that they cover the obstacles from above. Um, you can sort of think of it like so that if it were to rain, the obstacles would say stay dry in the rain. Um, but again, you can't touch the obstacles. So you have to stack around them. Um, and so the sort of like, yeah, it's like a, a very loose analog to like this idea of building shelter um, and, and building something that actually like plays a functional role. Um, so that's kind of like how we, we came up on those tasks. Um, oh, I, I should say like, yeah, so the covering hard is like a variant of covering just where you have like a limited number of blocks that you can use. And um, the... Uh, I didn't mention, but you can make some of the blocks sticky, so they like will stick to any other object they come in contact with. You can sort of think of it as like the object is covered in glue, uh, or the blocks are covered in, in glue. Um, and so, in in the covering task, uh, the regular covering task, the um, this like sticky block. If to make a block sticky, uh, you pay a penalty for it, and you pay a relatively high penalty for it. So the agent basically just learns not to ever use. The sticky blocks um, just, you know, have to stack things in a stable way. Whereas in covering hard, we lowered the the penalty for the sticky blocks a little bit. So the agent really kind of had to trade off between like, okay, should I use like, um, you know, uh, should you know, should I use a sticky block here and pay a little bit, or and like, you know, but then um, be able to cover more stuff, or should I not use a sticky block and potentially be able to cover less stuff because again, it only has a small number of objects that I can actually use to solve the task. So it requires like a little bit more um, reasoning um, than the the covering task. Was, was anything um, surprising to you in the results, or were they more like what you guys expected to find? I think they were sort of like roughly what we expected. I mean, I had the intuition that, you know, having like 
worked with these sorts of like, you know, physical scenes with blocks for a very long time. Um, that there's some like, again, because of the sort of like combinatorial na- nature of them, that they're, they're very challenging and that they should be pretty challenging for like your standard like class of RL agents to solve. Um, I think, um, and then, you know, we have been working with like the graph neural networks for a while. Like this is not the first paper that we've, you know, used them with. Um, uh, there's like my collaborators in particular have been, um, you know, working with, with them for a number of years. And so, you know, we had some intuitions too about like, you know, what types of problems those things work well on and in particular problems where you do have like a discrete set of entities that you need to reason about and reason about the relationships between those entities, like say a set of blocks and, you know, whether those blocks are like, you know, touching each other or on top of each other or whatever. Um, so I think our, our intuitions was that like the, you know, using the sort of like structured representations um, would... Uh, you know, work well in these types of tasks. I think the thing that was potentially like the most surprising was like the impact of the structured actions. That that was sort of something that, you know, going into this project, we we hadn't really thought of doing that yet. And then we sort of came up with the idea. And then that's the relative placement. Is that what that what you mean by that? Yeah, exactly. So like placing a block on top of another block um, rather than placing a block at like an absolute location. Um that sort of, and, and, oh, I should mention, so this is actually an interesting aspect of this paper is, is we didn't really go into details of the architecture that much, but the, the way that it actually executes these relative actions is by, um, so what the graph neural network does is it, it takes in a graph as input. So the graph is again, like these block properties, like the positions of the blocks, um, you know, their orientation, their size, so on and so forth. The graph neural network then processes this graph. Um, and so it like, you know, it passes information all over the graph and then it produces a new graph um, with activations on the nodes and the edges. And so what we can do is take the activations on the edges to actually correspond to our actions or our Q values um, in this case, because we're doing Q learning. And um, because they're on the edges of the graph, they correspond to things that are about the relationship between two objects or two blocks. So um, specifically, one edge might, say, correspond to, like, pick up one block, which is, you know, like the start node of the edge, and put it on top of a block, which is the end node of the edge. And then we can have uh, multiple activations on each edge, which might correspond to particular offset locations. So say, like, you know, not only do I want to put block A on top of block B, but I want to put it on the left or the right or the center or so on. Having this, uh, you know, actions actually on the edges of the graph itself. So rather than, you know, these sort of like, you know, global actions where you have like a fixed action size was that wasn't, you know, we weren't necessarily initially planning to do that, but like it, it sort of ended up working out really well to do that. Um, and, and, uh, that, that was sort of, I think a very pleasing result to find. So are your agents like the alpha go of block st- block stacking? Like, are they super, uh, do they get, did, did any of them get superhuman? I mean, I know that wasn't the point of, uh, from what I understood, it wasn't the point of your paper, but were they getting just really insanely good at this? Um, so I don't think you can do like a direct comparison here um, because in some ways they're superhuman, but in other ways they're not. Um, so the way in which they're superhuman is actually to do this task well, you have to have like pretty precise placement because again, you have this issue where if you, you know, collide a block with any of the obstacles, then the episode is over, like you lose. So, um, so that sort of requires like very precise positioning. And I think humans would not be that good at being so precise. Um, so in that sense, the agent is, is probably much better than what humans, um, can do. 
On the other hand, though, I think humans would be able to build much more complex structures than our agents are able to do. So I think, at least on the reasoning side of things, we still haven't really gotten to the level at what humans can think about and come up with, um, which is the part that I'm more interested in anyways. So, um, so there's still work to be done. And if I followed this right, I don't think it was a huge training budget. Is that right? Well, it depends on, do you mean like the number of episodes that the agent experienced or the, the search that it was performing? Yeah, well, good question. So I guess that depends on which agent, right? Whether it's doing the Monte Carlo tree search? Yes. Not. Yeah. Well, I mean, in, in both cases, we always had, we always were training agents, like sort of using your typical RL setup. Um, and then uh, in that case, I think, well, we, we always trained the agents to convergence. So it d- the amount of experience that they had depended a little bit. But I would say the amount of experience that they had was sort of like on par with other RL tasks. So we didn't, you know, I don't, I don't think we sort of like improved on data efficiency compared to other are all agents necessarily. Um, but one aspect of our agents was that we, in addition to having this sort of like structured policy, um, we combined that using uh, planning with Monte Carlo tree search. Um, and then in that case, we also used a very small amount of search, so only a search budget of 10, um, and found that, you know, having such a small search budget can, in some cases, still improve performance, um, even though you're not actually doing like that deep of a planning um, uh, yeah, you're not doing that deep of planning. So this paper references uh, Aziza Denishelli's paper, Surprising Negative Result on Generative Adversarial Tree Search. He was our guest mm-hmm. back in episode four. Um, I think he, he le- so he used a learned model, uh, with, but uh, is, it, is it right that this paper used uh, the environment directly so that there was no issue of model inaccuracy in, le- in a learned model? Yeah, so we... Yeah, so all the, the results reported in the main text are with the, the environment simulator. Um, the We did do some exploration that we have in the appendix of, of learning a model, though our results there were, I, th- I think we still, the, the model that we learned basically just wasn't like good enough. It had too much inaccuracy, and, um, and so we weren't able to really um, do that much better than the model-free agent. So I think that that's sort of more just a, um, a question of like improving the model learning, um, so which <clears throat> wasn't really the main focus of the paper anyways. So, sure. um, yeah, but, uh, yeah, we referenced the, um, uh, the, the other paper, the surprising negative results paper, um, just because, uh, they also did a, something a little bit similar to what we do, which is, um, using tree search sort of in the training loop. Um, so, you know, usually if you think of using Monte Carlo tree search, you think of say like, uh, you know, you sort of like apply tree search just at test time and you maybe like improve on your performance. But what we actually did is um, during the training loop, you know, when the agent executes an episode um, for each action, it runs some search, uses the search to like, um, you know, find a better action to take and then executes that action in the environment and then adds the resulting experience into the replay buffer and then learns from that experience. So it's always using tree search um, during during training as well as like at test time. Um and, uh, yeah, so we found that that, like, worked, uh, it can work in some cases, so we found it worked particularly well, like, in our covering hard task, um, though in other cases we found the behavior of, like, I- including the, the search during training time was maybe a little bit more unstable, potentially related to some of the same issues that they talked about in their paper, where um, the search sort of allows you to, uh, you know, locally avoid taking bad actions, um, but then 
um, you're not actually learning from the experience of the bad actions that because you never actually take them in the environment. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, so it's an interesting question of like, yeah, uh, thinking about how to do that a bit better. Are you able to share with us a little bit about what it was like working um, with the team on this paper? Um, yeah, it, so it was really great, actually. Um, I think that's one of the the cool things uh, about my job here at DeepMind is I, I feel like it's very collaborative and I have an opportunity to work with a lot of people. And um, it's, you know, people who have like a really wide range of expertise. I think sometimes in academia and in grad school in particular, like the focus is sort of on like, you know, you need to get enough like first author publications so that you can, you know, graduate and then get a job. Um, and so it's, you know, you might collaborate with people in some cases, but in in, in other cases, it can sometimes be, I think, a bit isolating because um, you're really focused on like your own core research, you know, projects. Um, uh, and so it was really nice to actually get to, you know, work very closely and collaboratively with a bunch of other people and, um, you know, sort of each of us having our own different areas of expertise. Like, and for me, coming from like a, a cognitive science psychology background, you know, like I, I have less like experience with sort of like, um, you know, the nitty gritty of like training agents. So I'm, you know, I, I have more of that experience now these days, but, um, but I, I have, um, and so like, you know, like some of the people that I was collaborating with have like much more of that. Um, whereas I have more experience, say, like, you know, thinking about like uh, the connection to human cognition and what are the things that humans are good at and what can we, you know, what insights can we bring from there into our agents. And, and so having, you know, working on a team very closely and all, all sort of like bringing our, our different areas of expertise is like, you know, it's very satisfying and it was really a lot of fun. And I, I had a question about follow-up work, but I, I'm not going to ask you anything about that because I see you just published a, pa- a follow-up paper um, just a few days ago, Object-Oriented State Editing for HRL. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah. So that's a, a work um, from uh, Victor, who was uh, the first author on the construction paper as well. And uh, yeah, so we were looking there at um, some of like the same types of tasks, but thinking about like how can we sort of like leverage um you know, uh, more notions of hierarchy. Um, so having like a hierarchical agent and, uh, in particular in that work, we were sort of exploring this idea that, well, like, so most hierarchical agents, um, are sort of, you know, they're like the, just like goal conditioned sort of hierarchical thing where you say, you know, you have the high level controller and it tells the low level agent, um, you know, oh, you should go here, you should solve this problem or whatever, but like the um, feudal networks or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, though they tend to be a little bit focused on, um, you know, like, uh, parts of the state space that you could actually like, uh, reach as a low level agent or that you might possibly experience, um, like from in a different type of episode. Um, uh, and, and things that are often, you know, very like position based. Um, so we were interested in saying like, okay, well, what if like the, the actions or the goals that the high level agent was giving the low level agent were more like object based instead? Um, and, and maybe potentially things that you might not, you know, actually even experience in the world. Um, and so, you know, we gave the high level controller access to things like being able to add objects into the scene or delete objects from the scene or modify the properties of objects in the scene um, in order to condition the behavior of the low-level agent. Um, and so, you know, the, the results that we have in that paper are kind of just like a preliminary set of results um, kind of demonstrating that, uh, you know, the, 
doing this sort of thing might potentially um, work if you scale it up. Um, though, you know, our, our results are sort of also with like, uh, we, we looked at having like a heuristic you know, handcrafted high-level controller and stuff. And we, we also tried training both the high-level and the low-level controller, but there it gets a lot thornier because you have to train both of them um, together. And then there's a question of like, you know, uh, what's the rate at which you update the high-level agent versus the low-level agent and sort of all of these implementation issues that we're still sort of like trying to sort out. So, Okay, I want to ask you about another paper, um, Analogs of Mental Simulation and Imagination in Deep Learning. That was mm-hmm. a solo paper for you. Uh, and I think it's related to your dissertation. Is that right? Right. So as I mentioned before, like I did my PhD in psychology. And so the, the topic of my PhD work was on um, this idea of mental simulation, which is you can think of as sort of like our ability to imagine you know, what the world might be like or what it was like in the past or how it might have been different. Um, and um, there's a whole like broad literature on mental simulation and uh, mental imagery is another term you might hear. Um, and so I was doing work on basically trying to do computational modeling of, of how humans, you know, mentally simulate things, um, like looking at questions like how do people decide like how many simulations to run or how do they, you know, extract the right information from their simulations and, and so on and so forth. And so during my PhD, I spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, how humans are um, doing this type of simulation. And I was always very interested in the connections between that and, you know, some of the ideas that were going on in, in AI. And I actually, like, during my PhD, I didn't have too much time to explore, like, the area of, of deep RL and, of, like, planning and model-based RL. But when I got to DeepMind, I, I spent some more time thinking about that and, and reading that literature and getting up to speed on it. And that's sort of how this uh, review paper was born was I, you know, I, I wanted to sort of explicitly make the connections between those two fields. Um, and so the paper is basically, it's a review of a lot of the recent work in model-based deep RL, um, and then explicitly sort of like trying to categorize and come up with like a taxonomy for that work in the context of how humans use mental simulation. Can you tell us a bit more about how humans do background planning versus decision time planning? Uh, yeah, so uh, background planning, is, so I, I think a lot of times we sort of like conflate these ideas in, in uh, especially, I, I think that they used to be maybe like a little bit different, like um, before deep learning sort of came along, like you had, you know, ideas like, okay, like you have Monte Carlo Tree Search, that's like a decision time planning method, and you have things like Dyna, which is a background planning method, right? Um, uh, because you're you're just like simulating data from your model and then learning from that. And, and then when you're done, you have a policy and you can just run that. Um, uh, but uh, now I think we sort of like blend them a little bit. Like you see a lot of things that are doing, you know, they, they maybe like are doing both some form of decision time planning and some form of background planning. Um, but uh, and I think that that's probably true in humans too, but it's also, I think, useful to think about those two things as, as being separate. So um, in background planning, you sort of have, that's, you know, kind of like um, something that maybe potentially happens um, in downtime or just from like lots of like, um, uh, you know, uh, if you, you mentally imagine doing something um, and then like maybe, you know, sort of like 
learn something new from that, but you're not actually actively trying to do anything. So one nice example of this is this idea of a mental practice where you can, you know, for example, if you're an athlete or a musician, you can imagine, you know, taking some action, like imagine throwing a ball or, or performing your musical piece. And then you actually find that like later, if you actually go and do that, then you're better at performing that action or, or playing that piece. Um, and so, you know, even though you're not actually really practicing it, you're, you're practicing it using your mental model of the world. So that's a bit similar to this, you know, the idea of background planning in AI. And then, but then I think like the majority of mental simulation corresponds more to ideas in uh, decision time planning, whereas the idea that you're actively running a mental simulation to make a decision, like, you know, I need to, uh, you know, decide where to place the next block. So I'm going to imagine, oh, if I put it here, oh, it'll cause the tower to fall over. But if I put it here, um, it'll be stable. And so I, you know, I choose the second place. Okay, so as an example, that maybe our listeners would be familiar with, like Alpha Zero, I think, does both of these types of planning. Um, yes, usually, that's right. right. Yeah. So on, the, and then decision time planning. Um, I guess it doesn't have if if we just use the raw network predictions of the Q values, then then we wouldn't be doing decision time planning. But that's a much weaker agent that way. Uh, yes, right. Seems to be different, like various ways that RL. Um, agents can use a model like like planning forward and planning backward um, use it for exploration or for propagating credit I think that would be the Dyna case mm-hmm. um, or direct back propagation through the model dynamics mm-hmm. like there's there's all these very different approaches and I wonder do these have analogs in human cognition like do we also use models in a variety of ways Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I think humans actually use models in a way that's like far more diverse than how um, agents use them. Um, so, you know, like all of those things that you listed, I think are are absolutely true. Um, but there's a lot of other ways you could use models, too. Um, for example, like, uh, well, I guess like I, in, in some of these cases, like some of the things that you listed are I guess, like pretty broad umbrellas, like say, like propagating credit, but there's lots of ways that you could use a model to do that, um, that we don't really necessarily explore that much. So like, maybe you are actually using the model to do more like, um, you know, some form of like counterfactual reasoning, or inference about like, um, you know, certain um, aspects of the world, and then you use that as a method for, um, you know, say, like explaining away, like certain reasons why you might have gotten a reward versus others. Um, and that's definitely something that humans do, uh, but that you don't see like quite so frequently, um, in, in agents. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think, uh, for some of the other things you listed, like, uh, say like direct backprop through the model, I mean, it's a little hard to say like whether that is something that people do since that's kind of, it's more of like a, um, that's something that's very specific to the particular way that you're like implementing your model is like whether it's differentiable or not. Do, are the models that we have in our minds differentiable? Uh, I have no idea actually. So, um, I'm not sure, but, uh, I I think, I wonder how you would test that. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, to me, when I'm using a tool, when with the tool use thing, we get into this mode where we're like, Oh, if we just do a little bit more of that, then we get a little more of that on the tool. And and to that that's a, that is like a differential uh, differentiation ish. Well, type thing, we definitely have very good ways, I think, of sort of identifying, of, of basically solving the credit assignment problem, right? Um, when we're using models, like we know, like if things happen one way, then 
like, you know, you can tell like, oh, uh, you know, okay, I, I tried something and it didn't quite work, but I know that that's the right way to do it. I just need to like, you know, do it better next time as opposed to like, I tried something and I think that that's probably not the way to do it at all. I need to change my strategy. Um, that's like the sort of like, you know, model-based like credit assignment that humans can do that like, I, I don't, I mean... Being able to differentiate through your model gives you some aspect of that, like in particular, like, oh, maybe I did it the right way and I need to just like adjust it. Um, but, you know, say like the idea that this is not the right thing that I'm doing at all. I should do, try something else entirely is is much more different from that. So um, so there's some, yeah, there's like definitely some uh, some things that seem like there are parallels, uh, but there's also a lot of ways in which um, the human use of models departs pretty strongly from the agent use of models. But I think that that is like a very interesting area of research is how can we try to, you know, bring those, um, bring bring the, the ways that agents use models closer to the way that people use models um, in order to get more powerful model-based reasoning. So I, I think in your work, you, you refer to the, the models um, in our minds that are, as being similar to POMDPs in some ways. Yeah, well, I think the POMDP framework is useful for sort of talking about the types of mental simulations that um, people have explored in cognitive science, um, which are not always like sort of framed in the language of decision making. Um, so, for example, like uh, one of the uh, the largest like sort of sub areas of mental simulation is this idea of like mental imagery where um, you know if you imagine something you can sort of like see it in your mind's eye or whatever and and um, and so there's like a lot of work on trying to explain you know like what are the representations that are used there what you know how are those representations useful like uh, are they spatial or are they symbolic in nature um, all these sorts of questions but they're usually not sort of framed in the in the way of saying like oh like um, you know these are uh, sort of, you know, they're not framed in the language of, say, like, this is, you know, transitions in your forward model, or this is, like, um, you know, like, uh, your observation f- function, which is going from, like, a low, you know, like a sort of a latent state representation to the actual, like, observations that you see. Um, and so I think uh, framing the res- the past research in mental simulation in terms of the POMDP framework can sort of um, draw out, you know, a different way of thinking about it and a different way of asking questions about um, those sort of cognitive phenomenon that we have necessarily um, uh, used in the past. Is there some uh, notion of reward or value that's very common in mental simulation? So I would say that that's probably the place where um, like RL perhaps departs the most from human cognition. I mean, it was certainly we have some notion of like, uh, you know, like what things are, are good and like, you know, what goals we're directing ourselves to. And those are things that you can obviously like, um, uh, formulate in terms of reward. Um, so in that sense, there is a reward though. I think it may be like, this yeah, there's a sense of reward in the sense that we're optimizing for something. Um, though it's maybe, I, I don't know if in all cases you would be able to find like, the precise like reward scalar reward signal um, for the task that you're doing. In some cases, you definitely can, and there's a lot of neuroscience actually like exploring the idea that like you know the brain encodes reward. Um, but if you're talking about like you know certain types of like high level co- cognitive phenomenon too, like there's lots of things that you might be optimizing for at once. You know, not 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 necessarily just like doing well on like the particular task that you're trying to do, but you're also optimizing for like you know. 
how much effort is it taking me to do this task? And like, um, you know, should I like, you know, stop and go do something else right now? Like maybe I need to go eat something because I'm hungry or whatever. And so, um, uh, you know, there's, there's in some sense, like a lot of the, um, you know, the reward signal that like that we might be using um, when running mental simulations is potentially not quite the same as like what we would see like in a standard RL agent. And maybe some of that is reflected in the paper you mentioned, model-based planning, where the, where there was that other process that was thinking about how long to think about this. Uh, well, so, sorry, which paper precisely are you? Referring uh, I think to? you mentioned one in your in your ICML talk, um, model-based planning that was about the spaceships that would decide. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. To, okay. How long to plan the trajectories? Yeah. yeah. The the reason why I, I sort of asked is because I actually have I sort of have like two papers on this. Like one is from the ah. the cognitive science side, and one is from the AI side. So, like on the cognitive science side, I have uh, some work that's looking at like um, yeah, how many simulations should you run before you actually make a decision. Um, so, so what's that like, um, you know, the time, the speed accuracy trade off there, um, and looking at how humans make that, that trade off, um, in the context of physical reasoning tasks. And then I have this, yeah, this other paper, the one that you mentioned, um, sort of more from the AI side, which is, uh, actually getting an agent to also make those sort of trade offs in their decisions. It's almost like another meta level to the whole explore exploit, um, tension. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, like, so the, there's a literature on, on this sort of field of study. It's called meta reasoning. Um, it has meta in the name. It's sometimes confused, I think, with meta learning, but is, is more about, yeah, reasoning about your reasoning process. Like, what computations should I perform so that I can get the best result rather than, you know, like what, uh, you know, what actions in the real world should I take to get the best result? I saw David Silver, um, talk about at ICML also talk about the predictron and these value focused model concept that he has, mm-hmm. which seem to be, it's, it seems like he's moving away from this notion of the high fidelity transition functions, the one step transitions and, and more to this ab, some notion of a more abstract notion of value. Um, is that, do, do you think that that line of work is more in the direction of how our cognition works? In some ways, yes. In other ways, no. So I think having a purely sort of value-based model is quite different from how humans use models because our models are are not for like one particular task. I mean, they might be biased for the particular task that we're trying to achieve. So they might not be completely, you know, dissociated from the task, but we definitely have like actual like state transition models where we understand how you know, the configuration of things in the world is going to evolve. And we know, like, you know, why things occur, not just like what good, you know, how likely it is for like good things to happen. Um, but, um, it, it, you know, when you say things like high fidelity transition models, like in that sense, I think it is more similar because we're also not, you know, the, the transition models that um, humans have are not, say, like doing um, trying to do like pixel reconstruction about like, you know, predicting the next frame. The the models that we have are much more abstract than that. Um, so, you know, it's like we're, we would be able to predict things, you know, over like uh, longer time scales, more, you know, more jumpier um, types of predictions and um, and reasoning about sort of like more abstract notions like, you know, is this thing going to move from like over here to over here? Not like, is it going to move by like, you know, 0.01 units or something? 
So towards the end of your um, analogs paper, you mentioned some challenges for models to match human, human cognition. Um, I, I wonder if you would want to comment on how the, f- the field of RL approaches these challenges today. Like, where are we with these, these three things? You mentioned compositional and assembled on the fly, mm-hmm. um, planning with only a handful of evaluations from noisy and complete models, and models must generalize far from their training sets. I'm quoting you here, by the way, supportive, mm-hmm. supporting creative exploration and a richer understanding of the world. So these these seem like really big challenges. Where where is the field with these? Like, let's say for the first one, compositional and assembled on the fly. So I think in terms of the compositional part is like, I think we're like getting a better handle on that. So like with, um, you know, with the sort of like graph neural network agents that I talked about, um, like in the... Um, the paper with the, you know, the agents being trained to stack blocks, like those are very compositional agents. They have a very compositional understanding of the world. Um, the assembled on the fly part, though, I think we're pretty far from. Like, so the, what I mean by that is like, when you have a model of the world, like that model should be something that you construct, like, you know, so you find your, like, say, say you're an agent and you like, you wake up in a new environment and you're like, okay, I got to solve a task. And then you make a model of the world based on like what you see. You don't just like have some model of the world that you've like trained over like, you know, a million episodes or whatever. Um, you have, you sort of are like, oh, okay, I can see that there's like these objects in the scene and I know like how they probably interact with each other. So I can sort of like really quickly assemble like a, you know, a, basically a mental model of like what is what's here, you know, how those things work together um, and, you know, be able to maybe even make predictions about how two things might work together that like you've never seen, um, you know, interacting before. Um, And so, yeah, this idea of assembling a model on the fly rather than sort of having like a, this gigantic, like uh, sort of holistic model based on all of your previous experience. Does that sort of make sense? Totally. So you're really tackling, um, part of this first one with with uh with this line of work with your um uh graph-based agents and and the and the structure paper yeah yeah exactly so with the second one planning with only a handful of evaluations from noisy incomplete models i mean that one made me think of pilco uh to start with Mm -hmm. just because it was good with uncertainty but i wonder what uh, broader than that um how what do you where do you think we are with with item two planning with with noisy incomplete models yeah, so I, I think that there's certainly like um, there's some some instances where um, you know planning with a, a handful of evaluations or you know a handful of uh, like you know episodes um, can work reasonably well, but I think they still like don't really match the the scope at which like humans are doing that. So right, like if you like you know say like you find yourself like in a new place, like maybe you go to like a new shopping mall or something. So like the layout's totally different. All the people in the room are totally different and you need to like find your way to like the store that you need to go to. You know, you don't have a good model of that environment. Um, And maybe you have like a, a good abstract model of like how space works in general, but like, you know, you might still be like, okay, well, like, what if I went down over here? Like, okay, it looks like maybe those shops are like, you know, based on, I don't know, like the, all the clothes stores are, are, are over there. And then like, uh, you know, maybe there's like toy stores over on the other side. And like, so you could like, you know, sort of very quickly just based off of like, um, only a very small amount of experience, like, uh, quickly, um, you know, construct sort of like, 
uh, an approximate model. So it ties into like this idea of assembling a model on the fly um, and then run forward simulations from this like probably wrong model and still like get useful information out of that. Um, so like the sort of idea that like your the simulations from your model are like they're not even like a pro like a little bit wrong they're like probably very wrong but like you can still probably get somewhere with them is is something that human cognition seems to be pretty robust to um, but I don't think we really have anything that looks quite like that in our agents yet. I guess we have the advantage of of having an incredible amount of bias built in inductive bias and. Um, yeah, like the, the the whole evolution behind us, and what would that exactly. even mean for a for a, a a deep RL agent to have that behind it? Yeah, totally. I think that's kind of like the main question is like, how do you get to the point where you have an agent that you know that has that sort of like that can can do that sort of thing that can like get away with only a few like noisy evaluations from your like probably wrong model means that you have to already like have a lot of sort of good intuitions for a lot of other things and so like where do those intuitions come from in what way does the model sort of supplement those intuitions i think are very interesting um, and important research questions okay and then the third one models must generalize far from their training sets um creative exploration and richer understanding of the world i mean you mentioned the blueberry earth paper which i thought was i'm so glad you put that in there because i did i did start reading that and I, I recommend listeners read that um that paper um yeah how would an agent ever uh, write a paper like that uh, exactly i mean i don't know but <laughs> i, I want to find out um yeah for uh, for people who don't know what this paper is like so um basically someone on Stack Overflow or it was either Stack Overflow or Reddit, I forget, but um, they asked the question of what, what would happen if the earth were replaced by blueberries? And then um, this other person came along and they actually like wrote a paper uh, sort of, you know, taking the physical principles uh, at, that, you know, would be relevant in this particular case and sort of like running them to their logical conclusion. And, and so the, you know, the idea would be like, oh, okay, well, like the gravity of all the berries, like suddenly, like, you know, causes all the berries to like collapse in and of themselves and like become jelly. And then like, you know, so a, like the earth would, you know, immediately become smaller. <laughs> um, and then probably the heat from that would cause the jelly to be like, you know, boiling or whatever. And it's just a very interesting, like fun, um, uh, a fun, you know, thought experiment, basically, of what would happen if that were the case. But I think that it's such a good demonstration of like, you know, people think of all sorts of weird stuff, like, you know, you know, why does someone like think that that's like an interesting question to ask, like, what would happen if the earth were replaced by blueberries? Like, um, but I think that that is sort of, it really underscores like what makes human cognition so interesting and so powerful is that we are able to come up with questions like that. And we're able to come up with, you know, uh, plausible, at least, explanations for the answers. Um, and, you know, potentially, if you look at, like, some types of RL agents that, you know, maybe, like, you know, stuff looking at, you know, from the, like, the literature on, like, generative models and, like, you know, uh, GANs and, like, um, you know, uh, like, text generation and stuff like this, like, you have agents that also come up with kind of weird stuff, but they, they don't come up with the weird stuff in a way that's, like, for any reason in particular, right? It's just because they haven't like properly fit the, the actual like real distribution of the data. Um, whereas people come up with weird stuff, not because they haven't fit the true distribution of the data, but because um, they know that like there's things that they don't know and they want to explore um, and understand the world around them. And so I think that's a really like big and important difference. And I, that, I think that question of like, how do you get agents to be anywhere 
close to that is like a huge un- unanswered question. It seems like they would really need to understand causality and not just Absolutely. correlation, which we yep. haven't really seen that much of in, in DRO. Yeah, um, totally. So, um, so are our minds like running tons of these simulations all the time without us being aware of it? Like I know there's moments when I'm thinking carefully, like how would this block or this object look if I rotate it? I'm very conscious of running that. But, you know, if I, if, if, if we really knew what was happening, would we find just thousands of these running all the time? Or is it more of a conscious thing? How do you look at that? Like, is it, a, is, is simulation a big chunk of what's happening up there? Yes. Um, so both is happening. So we have models in like all over cognition. So like in lots of different aspects of cognition. So like one place where there are models, for example, is in the motor system. There's very low level models that actually are assisting with motor control. And those are like constantly happening. You know, every time you make a motion, like those models are running forward. Um, on that point. So it's not, we're not just executing policies. We're running models. Yes. Are you saying? Okay, yeah. cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The models in the, in the motor system are used for, um, sort of uh, accounting for the, the delay, um, that it actually physically takes like a signal to, to go from the brain to the muscle, um, and then come back. Uh, so because of that delay, you know, you can't actually get the sensory feedback from the world until a short period of time later. And so the model actually compensates for that by being able to predict what will happen. It allows, um, the mind to, or the brain to be able to come up with the next action to take mm. before it's actually received the feedback from the world. And on a super small note, I just really love the indicators on the references, um, marking which ones were of a special interest that really helped me prioritize the, the, the references. So this is a small feature, but I thought it was cool. Yeah, that's actually, uh, that's a feature of the journal. Um, so I, oh. I wish that we had more uh, journals like that in, in machine learning um, that sort of like, you know, prioritize these sort of like, you know, half opinion piece, half review sort of things. Um, you don't see that quite so much. In that would help. Learning, There's so many references to look at. Yeah, I know. So, <laughs> okay. So, in, um, so aside from your own work, um, do you have, could you maybe comment on other things that are happening in the world of RL that, that you find really interesting these days? Well, one trend that I feel like I've noticed is just that I, I think we're moving away a little bit from the end-to-end um, approach, which I think is healthy. Um, I mean, so I, I generally think that like having a diversity of research is important just in general. Like, I think it's good if people are working on things, even if I don't think that they're like, you know, the right way to do it or whatever, or it's not the approach that I would take. So I think it's good for everyone to, you know, be working on different stuff. But I think, I do think that the field has been maybe like a little bit like overly focused on end to end learning, um, where you don't like care quite so much about like, what is the, you know, what are like the right inductive biases that we need to incorporate into our agents? And, um, you know, what are like, uh, you know, problems that are sort of like more compositional and, and these sorts of things. And, and so thinking about like those types of structure or inductive bias, I think, is super important. And I think the field is starting to move a little bit back and starting to think about those a bit more. So that's like, that's very encouraging and exciting to me. Maybe mixing a little bit of the good old fashioned AI back in there. Yeah, exactly. Um, do you have strong opinions about what RL might uh, might look like in 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 the coming years, like in three or twenty years? Strong opinions? Uh, no, I mean I, I hope that it will look 
more of like a blend of, you know, like sort of not just pushing like the model free thing, but also like incorporating strong notions of planning and, and models and, and not, you know, not just like, you know, the sort of like next step models, but like the things that I, I talked about in my review paper, but models that, you know, are, you know, more compositional and that enable things like counterfactual reasoning and like the sort of like really creative, like problem solving and stuff. Um, so I, I hope that RL will sort of like have all of those elements in it um, eventually. But my last question is: Do you have any suggestions for us for this podcast? Uh, not in particular. I think it's uh, it, it seems like a very nice podcast. I've, I've really enjoyed um, chatting with you today. So uh, yeah, keep up the good work. I guess. Thanks so much, Dr. Hamrick. Um, on behalf of our listeners and myself, um, for your valuable time and your insight. Thanks again, Dr. Jessica Hamrick. Thank you. That's our episode for today, folks. Be sure to check talkrl.com for more great episodes. 